Today we start a, a four-week series. We're going to go through Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're going to take a little tour of the seven churches that are listed there. And I have to confess right up front, I've never done a message series going through Revelation, so this is the first for me. And uh, you may say I kind of wimped out. <laughs> Uh, because Revelation, if you've read it, there's a lot of crazy imagery, right? There's a lot of things that just don't make sense. And so my first little step into this with you all is let's take some things that maybe make sense. And so we're looking at seven churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. But my prayer for us as we work our way through this series is that God would speak to you as we listen to his message for these seven churches. And that God would speak to you just that one thing. What is the one thing God wants you to hear? What's that one area in your life that needs to be addressed? What's one thing? And I believe that if you ask God to search you and to reveal to you what that one thing is, he's so good, he will do it. All right? That's my prayer for us as we begin this service. And so let's begin this service in prayer. Father God, we are before you. We thank you, God, that you are alive. And that, Father, your son has been raised from the dead. And that he's the one who holds the keys to death and to hell. Father, he is powerful. He is at your right hand. He is securing our salvation. He is interceding for us. And he has a word for us. And he will apply that. You will apply that through your Holy Spirit. And so, God, we make ourselves available to that work you want to do in us today and in the weeks to come. God, we humble ourselves before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're just going to hop right into this today. I'm kind of looking at the clock, and the time's getting away from us already. So if you have your Bibles, let's just jump right in. It's going to be Revelation. Start with chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 1. All right, and I'll put the verse up behind us, and uh, you can follow along as I read. If you have your Bible, though, it would be great if you'd open up your Bible and and get in it yourself here. And we're going to read this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, I said there's a lot of weird imagery in Revelation. All right, This isn't as weird as some of the later stuff, but it still takes a little bit of explaining. First of all, who's speaking here? Jesus, right? Nothing really difficult about that. It's the risen Christ who is speaking through the Apostle John. Uh, Paul read about this resurrected Christ, what he looks like, the power that is with him, and who he is in his his resurrected and glorified uh, state. And he's the one who is speaking here. And he is holding seven stars in his right, right hand, and he's walking among seven golden lampstands. The nice thing about this little imagery is that uh, it's already interpreted for us a little bit. Keep your finger right there. Just go back a few uh, verses. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, uh, we read this. The mystery of the seven stars. All right, we're going to get an explanation. The mystery. Thank goodness for the interpretation. Let's make it clear. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's clear, right? Pretty straightforward for the most part. Um, What we have, lampstand equals church. All right? And just as a lampstand, I think this is some of the imagery that's there, just as a lampstand would draw upon the oil in that day uh, to get its light, the church filled with the Holy Spirit 
is to draw upon the life of the Spirit and shine forth the radiance of the glory of God. That's the lampstand. It's a church. The next one, though, a star equals an angel. Now, this is going to need a little clarification, and I'm just going to confess right up front. Uh, I'm going to give you my bias, and I'll give you reasons for it. And you may disagree, and that's okay, because I don't think it's a deal breaker when we start to unpack what's going on here. I just want you to know there's different ways to look at this, and I think they're equally valid. The way I'm coming from is this. Uh, the word star says it's an, it's an angel. I think it's a real person. And I think it for this reason. Uh, the word angel is the Greek word angelos, and it means messenger. So on that level, it's just a messenger, someone who has the message. Now, why do I think it's a human? As, uh, I believe it's a human for this reason. <clears throat> there are real blessings and there are real curses pronounced upon these real churches. And I would have a hard time trying to see how does an angel, a supernatural, spiritual, celestial being, get tied up into the curse that's placed upon that local church. I think that the curse, the threat that is placed there by the resurrected Christ is going to be directed toward the messenger of that local church, the messengers of that local church, the leaders, the pastor, the elders. And I also think it's a real person because I think it goes with the parallelism here in this passage. Lampstand equals real church. These are real churches. And we're going to look at some of the, all seven of them over the next four weeks. Um, and so just as the lampstand equals a real church, I think that this angel is going to be equaling a real person. The pastor, the leader, the shepherd, the elders of the church in that community. So that's where I'm coming from. But if you want to take it another way, that's okay. I think either way you're going to hear this. That in the right hand of God, in the right hand of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, are the, the messengers, the leaders, the elders, the pastors of that congregation in that community. That is the position of authority and power and safety. He holds them. And not only does he hold them, but he speaks to them. He has a message that he wants that church, that lampstand to hear, through that messenger. And that tells me that our God is intimately involved with his church, walking in the midst of the church. He is the one who has the authority to pronounce discipline and blessing. And so this is the message that the resurrected Christ is giving now to the churches. And the first church he begins with is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a familiar church to a lot of us if you've done your study of, of the Bible, if you've read in the Bible, Ephesus appears several times throughout the Scripture. But I thought to help us kind of get our mind around it and kind of get the, the historical and maybe even the cultural context that the hearers, right? Remember, John is sending this letter to real churches, church in Ephesus. What would they have heard when they heard this message coming from the pen of John? And so I thought, let's go and let's try to understand kind of the historical and the cultural context. And, and so what we have done... John, we're going to have to flip over. Not the Apostle John. John, the slide operator. Um, we're going to have to flip over. What, what we did is uh, I went to uh, Google Earth Pro, all right? And I got the seven-day trial, period, all right? And we were able to create this video, and I, I think it's a great, um, a great tool, um, but I couldn't afford the $500 it was to actually, you know, make this happen. So when you see this, could John go ahead and kick play again up there? There you go. So we click on play again. It should just launch it, John. Maybe not. There we are. See, now you can pause it, John, right there. Whoop. All right. Trial version right across it. All right. Hopefully that'll, that'll, 
let you know, all right, this is legit, we can use it, but it is trial, so you're going to have to deal with that for a little while. And now we're starting our journey. We're going to get to Northwest Hills. Go ahead and play this. Okay, pause it right there. See Northwest Hills? See it? Big old parking lot. The building's here. Worship centers, we're in here. Hello. Just wave to the satellite. Okay, we're in there. So um, let's start our journey. We're going to take off from Corvallis, and we're going to go over to uh, Asia Minor. We're going to get to uh, present-day Turkey. Let's play this. Up we go, up we go, up we go. Flip the globe. Here we are. Let's pause it right there, John. Okay. Bam. Here we are. First of the seven churches. we got seven churches in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. Uh, the seven churches, the first one we're going to look at today, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Ah, you're going to be quizzed on this by the end of our four weeks. You will know these seven churches, okay? Um, when you look at those, and I started to, to read and study this week, you just accept it. Okay, there's seven churches. No big deal. But you've got to ask, why? Why those seven churches? Because there are other churches in Asia Minor. There were other churches in Turkey. We know Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, which is here. We know he mentions a church in Troas, which is here. So why those seven churches? And it's interesting. You start doing some historical and archaeological uh, study. And I came across, and this is nothing new. You can find it yourself. There was, uh, in the time of, of Paul and of John during the, the Roman reign, there was uh, this council. It was the common council of the province. And they had their seven dominant cities. And they were listed in a descending order of priority from first city down to seventh city. And five of the cities that they had, in their seven, are listed here by John in the seven that he communicates. And those five were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Sardis, and Laodicea. Those are the five. They were part of very common cultural, historical understanding um, of the common council of that province. Five dominant. Um, there was a total of seven. And archaeologists are debating what the other two were. But John gives us these seven. And apparently this is what it was. It was kind of like a, an early postal system, you know. Before email and Facebook, and you try to communicate with people, if Rome wanted to get a message to Asia Minor, they would send the message to a city, and apparently that city was like a hub, and it was responsible for seven other little cities, all right? It began to, to multiply out. And so they'd get the message to the one city, then the message would go to city number two, city number three, city number four, city number five, all the way through city number seven. Each one of those cities responsible to communicate that message to the seven little cities around them. All right, And so those are the, the seven cities of Asia Minor. And so if that's true, then what we're looking at um, is as these seven churches are communicated with, they are representing the totality of Asia Minor. <clears throat> and as you look at those uh, seven churches, this gets reinforced even on transportation. There's a major highway that runs and connects all seven of these Cities, all major metropolitan, commercial, uh, business-oriented communities. And some people have tried through the ages to take what John has given us in these seven churches and said, well, really, it's kind of a prophetic anticipation. You know, there's going to be distinct phases that the church will go through. And each one of these cities represents one of those phases. And he said the first phase, these, these uh, pr uh, 
people that are really interested in the prophecy would say the first phase is the apostolic phase, and that's going to last about 100 A.D. And then it's, the church is going to go through a period of persecution. You know, it's going to last about 300. And then it's going to go into a state church, 313 Constantine, you know, Christianity becomes a state religion. And then that's going to last about 500. And then from 500 to 1500, it's going to become kind of the papal uh, church, the Church of Rome. And then in 1517, it's going to move from that to a Reformation-based church. And then in the 18th century, you're going to get this big missionary movement. It's going to be the missionary church. And then you're going to move into the 19th and 20th, 21st century, and you got the apostate church. You guys heard of that before? A few of you, right? You know, it's, it's, an, it's interesting to go through and say, you know, it would be nice that history could be classified so cleanly. But I have a problem with that, um, partly because we're reading that all back into that. Number one. Number two is you can look around the world, and every characteristic that we're going to unpack is found in every church and community of churches around the globe um, today. The other thing I want you to know as you look at that is uh, we have a tendency to look at these churches and say, okay, which church is ours? You know, which church is ours? Are we Ephesus? Are we Philadelphia? Are we Sardis? And I'm going to say, let's not even go there. We're not going to go there for this reason. Um, when the letter would come to a city, it was basically to the church, and it wasn't just one church. It was all churches that were part of that church, made up that city. And so it was more like writing a letter to the church in Corvallis. All right? You need to communicate this message to the church in Corvallis. And there was a different spirit among those churches uh, than there would be, let's say, in the churches in Portland. Okay? So that's what's kind of happening here. And so we're not going to say, okay, how does Northwest Hills fit, but maybe what's the culture in which we're living? Let's understand that. What I would ask us as we kind of go through this is that the church is Christ's church. We make up Christ. And my conviction is what's happening regionally is a reflection of what's happening personally and individually. So as we listen to what the message is for this church, my charge to you would be, okay, God, through your Holy Spirit, what is the one thing? What is the one thing you want me to hear? What's the one thing you want me to know? So, John, let's I'm sorry, man. Let's go. There's so much history here, but let's keep this thing moving. Um, coming in a little closer, there's the seven churches. We're coming down to Ephesus. We're going to look at Ephesus. Let's pause right there. Whoop. Ah, sorry about that. Um, when you look at Ephesus, the city of Ephesus doesn't exist anymore today. It was abandoned in about 1300 A.D. The current city, if you wanted to go visit Ephesus, is Selchuk in, in Turkey, and that's kind of the part of it over here. It's a major metropolitan area. Um, Ephesus, in its heyday, it was a dominant city, a principal city in the Roman Empire for Asia. Uh, it had the, the uh, designation of being what they called chief harbor. It was the seaport of Rome. It was the official seaport. If you wanted to have official business and transaction with Rome, it would have to come through the harbor in Ephesus. And likewise, Rome sending a message would send it to Ephesus first. And so that tells you, on this postal route of seven, in Rome's mind, Ephesus was city number one, and history bears that out, first place. It's hard to imagine that today, because this right here, ancient Ephesus, is actually six miles from the present uh, coastline of the Aegean and the Mediterranean. And that is because the, um, Ephesus sits really where the Meander River and the Keister River come in. They feed into the Mediterranean. And they, for centuries, were dredging all of this, trying to keep their harbor clean, but they just, it just became, you know, unconquerable. They couldn't do it. And so what happened over the history of Ephesus, Ephesus actually moved this location four different times. Archaeology, that's awesome, because instead of having a city just built upon itself, 
they'll say, wow, we're able to find all of these ruins from when Paul was writing. And so this has got some great archaeological evidence and ruins there in Ephesus. Um, and so the city had moved. Ephesus was a major player. It was a primary city. It was a major metropolitan area, too. 250,000 people lived in Ephesus during the time when John was writing. That's a big city for that time. It's a big city for our time. And so that's kind of what we're looking at here. Let's keep the slides rolling, John. Coming down, that's... Yeah, let's keep it going. We're looking at some of the, the core of ancient Ephesus. Pause right there. Yeah, we're fading into another one. That's okay. Um, hopefully you can see that. That little mound right there is Mount Pion. Um, that's kind of like climbing up um, to Dimple to look back over the valley. You get up there. The big theater is carved into the, the side of it. You look back over Pion, over all of Ephesus. I, I hear it's beautiful. Some of the images you can go on Google Earth and get down. It's actually fascinating. Keep it going. Um, this is what archaeologists say the city would look like. Pause it right there, John. Just briefly, you can see where the harbor is. See it? Much closer to the hill than it is today. There's the major theater. Um, the city would be laid out. That big square, I wish I could reach up higher. I need Ken's pointer. Um, but we can get up there. That is the Agora. That was the marketplace where probably the Apostle Paul was actually doing his tent making was in that area right there. Let's keep it going. Maybe. Oh, there we go. So this is Ephesus. Let's pause right there real fast. Oh, that's blurry. Let's keep going. There we go. Well, I'll just keep going, I guess. There, let's stop there. That... <laughs> let's not. Let's just keep. That's a great picture. Let's just roll this till it gets full. There you go. Stop right there. Yeah. Um, this right here, it's just a pile of rock, but that's really the school of Tyrannus. Um, if you're familiar, again, Acts chapter 19, Paul was in Ephesus, and he was there. And they said he, he taught in the synagogue for three months, and then for some reason he went beyond the synagogue, and he started teaching in the school of Tyrannus. These are the remains of Tyrannus, that school where Paul spoke for two years living in Ephesus. And the thought by some historians is, you know, he probably taught in the afternoon. Classes were held in the day. There's no air conditioning. As soon as it got hot, the official classes left. Paul was open to teach and reason with anybody who wanted to come in with him for two years. In the afternoon, he taught there. In the morning, he would have been in that agora place doing his tent making and creating a living for himself, um, which leads to a lot of interesting, fascinating uh, story when you read Acts 19. Because if you remember, uh, Paul is denouncing idols and idol making, and the people in the agora um, rise up and complain, and they say they chase him out into the great street. In fact, let's roll this a little further. Pause right there. Whoop. See the great street? That's that big, broad thing right here. The Agora would have been right about here. They would have chased him out there, and they ran him all the way to the theater. And so there's the theater of Ephesus, the great theater of Ephesus. Let's keep this going. Tip that around. Okay, here's some. <laughs> I don't even know how to use this, though, man. Whoa, look at there. Um, now i got to remember what we're doing. Okay, let's pause right here. Um, you can see here's, that, uh, here's the major Agora. Here's that road that we saw from the map. Here is... Uh, the theater. Now, if you come down and come around, this is the, the street, the Cerritis Street. And if you look here, we got three, one, two, and then three uh, temples made for the emperors. And let's keep this going, John. So and this is the street, the Cerritis Street. And today, this is what it looks like. Here are the columns coming down either side. You're heading, um, this is actually back into town. We should be heading this way. Don't point anybody in the eye. Um, keep it going. If you make your way this way on that street, keep, there we go, it's going to end up in this right here, basically Temple Square. 
And pause it right there. John, this I'm highlighting because this is about it's all that's left. This is the Temple of Isis, um, you know, the Egyptian goddess um, that kind of merged with the Greco-Roman understanding of, of the goddess, and she became the goddess of motherhood and magic and fertility. And so there was a shrine there for her. But in order to get to that, you passed other temples and shrines. John, let's just keep this going. Um, and that's significant because... Let's just get this picture. Let's pause it right there. So this would have been over here. You're coming this way. It's all these temples. Um, what is fascinating is not only was Isis there, but there was these three uh, temples to the emperors, to, um, to Domitian, to Trajan, and to Hadrian. Um, in order to have these temples, though, it's not like, okay, we want to have a temple to honor the emperor. You actually had to get permission from Rome. And to get one temple was an honor. Ephesus, first city, had three and sometimes they bragged about they were four times the Acheros. They were four times they had these, these uh, temples to the emperor. But history tells us they only had three to the Roman emperor. They were considered for a fourth, for Tiberius. But Rome said, mm, no, three is enough. Besides, you have another temple there, a temple that all of Asia worships at, and it's the temple of Artemis. Um, Artemis has her history here in Ephesus that dates back to like 1100 BC. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. What I've been told, it's beautiful. We'll see images of it here in a little bit. So, John, let's. So, anyhow, all these, you can't have the fourth one. So, but it was amazing that archaeologists found this coin and the three Roman temples were on there, as well as the Temple of Artemis was on there, which tells you there's a pretty tight alliance happening between these cults. Um, and they were powerful in the life of Ephesus. Um, John, let's keep this rolling. So we're spinning around. We're looking back toward the harbor, the Mediterranean. Now we're going to flip it around, and let's look right here if we can get a little closer. This is the Great Theater. Oops, taking your pen apart. Yes, pause it right there. The Great Theater of Ephesus. This theater um, would seat 25,000 people. Structurally very sound. Acoustics are phenomenal. Um, The way it is situated on the side of that hill and the way the winds would come off that Mediterranean, um, you didn't need any amplification. You could talk, and people in the upper balcony could hear you. And it's still so sturdy that in 1993, you know the, the, uh, the artist Sting? Yeah? Performed there in 1993. The place was sold out. And I guess it was a great concert. You can catch some of it on YouTube. Um, so there it is. It was in that theater in Ephesus. Um, it was also that same theater with Paul. The earliest writings, actually, of Ephesus in the Bible is Paul saying, I fought the wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, we don't know exactly what those might have been, but we do know historically that it was in that theater where the fans would gather in Ephesus and they would watch these exotic animals from Africa fight other animals or fight other people, all right? And so it was in this theater. Uh, let's keep it going because we're going to zoom now. Um, oh, I forgot we had these pictures. There's the theater. Keep it rolling. That's another angle of it. So let's roll. We're going to go past Mount Pion for about a mile over to the great temple of Artemis. Um, in her heyday, let's pause it right there, John. In her heyday, she covered 130 yards by 60 yards, four times larger than the Parthenon. Had 127 of these huge ionic columns that were 60 feet tall. And in the center was this huge statue to the goddess of Artemis. Um, and when Rome entered into the scene, Artemis was a Greek god. When Rome entered the scene, um, they kind of merged her with their goddess Diana. And so that's why we read in, in, uh, in Acts... When the big riots taking place, you know, 
Praise be to Diana of the Ephesians. That's all of this thing that's taken place. Um, John, let's keep rolling. We'll see some pictures of the temple. These are scaled down models that you can find while you're there. Beautiful, massive. All that's left was that one little column. But that'll kind of conclude. So that's kind of Ephesus, trying to get us the, the cultural and hopefully some of the historical background. And with that under our belt, what we hear is this. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, Revelation 2.2 says this. And you need to know, as he begins to talk to this church, it's this church more than any other church, he gives a lot of praise for who they are, what they're doing. And he says right up front, he says, I know. Who knows? Jesus knows, right? Uh, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You found them false. We're going to skip to verse 6, and we read there. You have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let's go back. I want to unpack this just briefly so you hear what Jesus is saying to this church. He says first, he goes, I, I know your deeds. The word deeds there is a Greek word, ergon. Let's, let's say that. We got it up on the screen for you. Let's say that together. Ergon. And that means, it's actually where we get our word energy. I know the energy that is, you have as a church. I know the energy. I know your deeds. I know your action. I know your productivity. I know the business of what's transpiring there. And it's powerful. I know your deeds. I know also, he says, uh, your hard work. Literally, that hard labor, the dedication required to deal with um, the, the burdens and the troubles. I know your perseverance. Some of your translations may say patience, because that's what it means. I've endured patiently the suffering that we have been experiencing. But he doesn't end there. He goes on and says, I understand that you've, you can't tolerate wicked men. They, they have a reputation for testing the claims of these guys who said they were from God, and they found them to be false. Remember, where Ephesus was situated was on that harbor, major thoroughfare. Anybody coming in, lots of tourists, lots of teachers coming on the major arterial, the road. This church had a lot of people coming in the name of Christ saying, hey, we're here to do the Lord's work. And they tested their claims, and it says they found them false. God was pleased with that. It says, you also have this in your favor. You hate the, the practice of the Nicolaitans, and I also hate that. We're going to spend a little more time in a couple weeks really understanding what this is. Because this is the only time, this and one other spot in this section, Romans, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, that this word, this group is even mentioned. And there's a lot of speculation as to who they, who they are and what they stood for. Uh, but to begin to get at the root of it, let me just kind of take this apart uh, from the, the, the Greek word itself. All right, Nicolaitan has come from two words. The first word is nikao. All right? And the second word is laos. Let's say the first one together. Nikao. Okay, and then laos. Okay, nikao means to overcome, to triumph. Uh, laos is simply people. All right? And uh, whatever this group was, they were a powerful group that was a very proud and arrogant group that sought to be a dominant group that sought to set themselves up in opposition to God. That at root would be kind of what is being communicated here. Now, there's a lot of other fascinating things we're going to unpack in a couple of weeks. But at root, that's what it is. Nikao. You guys probably, you, you know this word in our common language. We say the word Nike. All right? 
This is where Nike got their word, right here, from Nikao. In, in the, the Greek goddess, Nike was usually winged, and so it's personification of kind of winged victory. If you wanted to have a, a representation that you were victorious and powerful, you would find uh, Nike, the goddess Nike, somewhere in that city. All right? And, and so, in fact, the most famous one is this one. I think it's on the picture. This is uh, the Nike of Samothrace. She's in the Louvre uh, in Paris. Um, the most complete replica, not even a replica, the most complete ruin of Nike at an ancient ruin is right here. And that's in Ephesus. All right? And so uh, it's no surprise, winged victory, Nike, it's a swoosh, really, that's about having a wing. And so how many of you are wearing Nike shoes here today? Nobody's going to put their hand up. All right. Thank you. Take them home and burn them. No, I'm joking. <laughs> False gods over there, man. Uh, no. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's uh, the Nicolaitans were people who were proud, arrogant, overcomer, and they were asking the people to set them, to uh, align themselves with them. Now, if I had to paraphrase kind of what I'm hearing Jesus say to this church, he would say this. He's saying, Ephesus, I know you're in the middle of one of the most prominent pride-filled cities in all of Asia, that evil is all around. The people there worship false gods with powerful political ties. The great temple of Artemis is on your doorstep. I know you are positioned on the crossroad of the port city for all Asia. That money is king. The tourists are many. And you've had to deal with your fair share of traveling preachers who come, claim to come in my name. And in spite of all this, Jesus says, verse 3, You have persevered, and you have endured hardship for my name, and you've not grown weary. Well done. Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus say that about you? about the church that you're a part of. And yet for all the great that was going on, Jesus says this, yet despite all that, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your first love. What? That's it? That's the indictment? Well, let's talk about what is first love. How many of you have ever been in love? How many are you, are you, of you are in love? Oh, the ratio is not very good here. Yeah, good, strong, bold, right? Good, thank you. You know what first love is, right? You found that person and your heart raced and your palms got sweaty and you're like, I'm going to spend my entire life with this person. Even if we don't have any money, as long as I got you, babe, it's going to be good, right? And as you get older and you get, you know, your hair a little gray, you're like, hey, there may be snow on the roof, but there's a fire in my furnace, right? <laughs> That's first love, right? Now, who's first love? Jesus is. Jesus says there's been a cooling of that love. Oh, come on, Sean, it's not that big a deal. Just, isn't that to be expected? You know, love kind of, it kind of fades over time. That's to be expected, right? The answer is wrong. Because here's what I know, is when your love begins to fade, especially for God, it's not that your love goes down across the board, that your passion has ceased. What that usually means is that when your love begins to fade in one area, it goes up in another area. Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many will grow cold. 
Your love is growing cold because the love of wickedness has increased. And I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say we live in a time where our wickedness has increased, but not only that, access to wickedness has increased. And when we allow ourselves to be bombarded by images, by messages, and they keep coming at us, and we entertain that, and that passion begins to grow in us, your love for Christ will grow cold. Let's see this from a point of marriage, right? You get married, you love the person. Oh, man, I can't. How many newlyweds in here? You're like, I'm not going to confess. Yeah, I know there's a couple of you in here. See, yeah, we did your weddings. Should bring you up here is what I should do. <laughs> you fell in love, right? Again, everything was wonderful. We are going to just be in so much love. We're going to do everything together. We're even going to take the trash out together. We're so much in love, right? <laughs> and then you got married. Somebody just sighed. <laughs> it's like, oh. Then you got married. And you had all these pressures and all these appointments and all these demands and all these family feuds and things called kids, right? And all this distraction. And one day you go down to the breakfast table and you pour yourself a bowl of cereal and you go to take a bite and you look up and you go, who are you? (laughs) Right? Because you're sitting across the table from a complete stranger. Your love is growing cold. That is not acceptable. I'll tell you, if your love for the Lord has grown cold, God has done a great thing for us here. He's not just said, here is the predicament and here's the problem. He said, here's the cure, because this is curable. Because he understands that if you're trying to do this thing called Christianity, if you're trying to live the Christian life in your own power, it's not going to happen. It's going to be way too hard. You're going to end up... Burning yourself out on duty, and you're going to be just a shell of a person. And so he comes to this, and he says in uh, verse 5, he says, this is how you, you can cure this. He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Pretty simple, right? Remember, repent, and redo. Remember. Memory is a powerful thing. What was it that attracted you to your spouse? Remember that. What was it that attracted you to Christ? What was life like when you came to Christ and you gave your life to Christ? Do you remember the excitement? Remember the passion? Remember how fun it was to open up the Bible? Remember how exciting it was to come and sing songs and to be with other Christians and to hear what God was doing? Remember that? God says, get around that again. Remember that. And the passion will be reignited. New cravings will be created. Then he says, "Remember, repent. And he's talking to the church here. He's talking to us. Repent. Repent means change your mind. Change the way you've been thinking. Go before God and say, God, you know, I'm remember. I need to repent because there is stuff in my life that is keeping me from what we used to have. And God, I need you to come in. I need you to help me change the way I'm thinking. Change the way I'm viewing this stuff. Change the way I'm oriented my life so I can be back in that relationship with you where we were good, where we were tight, where there was passion, where I loved to be with you and we were learning and growing together. He says, repent. And if you're here today and you can't go, God, you know what? I love you with all my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength. You better find out why. If you walked out of here today and you lost everything, your house, your job, could you still say, God, 
Through Jesus Christ, I am completely satisfied. And if you can't say that, you better find out why. Oh, come on, Sean. It's just a little cooling of the emotion. No, it doesn't cut it. The consequences are severe. Remember, repent, and go back and begin to do those things with fresh eyes. Act your way into that new way of thinking and feeling and believing. Remember the height from which you fall and repent and do the things you did at first. Because here's the warning. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. This is a position of honor. Ephesus, remember, first city, proudful, arrogant, yet at the same time they had a position of honor that none of the other churches had. They were part of that first city. And God says, if you do not repent, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, this is the city, remember, it had moved four different times. Big difference between moving around and being removed. And he comes to them, and this, he says, coming, it's not talking about the second coming of Christ. The verb is, I will come right now and I will come in judgment upon you. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if there's anything that would be more devastating than to be with somebody that you know, somebody who knows you better than anybody else, somebody who knows your skill and your ability and your passion. And they're able to look through the veneer of your activity and say, you ain't cutting it, you're not living up. Something's not going on inside you that needs to be happening. And they come alongside and they say, you're out. Your time is over, you're done, I'm yanking you out. You know, as a player, you're playing in a sport game, right? And you know you've got the talent, you've got the ability, but you aren't performing. And to have your coach come up to you and say, you ain't cutting it. You're killing us. And then to have him pull you and bench you. In most of us, we know sport teams that are loaded with talent, and yet there's no passion there. And they're just going through the motions. And, you know, that's exactly what Jesus is saying about this church. You know, you're showing up, you're suiting up, You're going through the motion, but there ain't no life. There's no passion there. And before this gets real ugly, and before you make an embarrassment of my kingdom, I'm going to remove you. I'm going to remove your position, and I'm going to give it to somebody else. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, you're done, and you're being removed. Repent. Repent. And then he finally goes on and he says this. This is the message, and I think there's great encouragement here. He says, finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who overcomes, say that with me, nekao, remember, overcome, same word, nekao, one more time, nekao. Now, the one overcomes. Overcoming what? Are they coming, overcoming their, for their salvation? Is this a salvation thing? No, overcoming in Revelation is the one who is able to endure through the end and remain strong, perform to the end, go out, the gun's blazing, you know? That's what he's talking about. And if you overcome, this overcomer through Revelation, it says in chapters 2 and 3, the overcomer will receive one of 13, what I consider conditional rewards. But if you don't, you don't repent, you don't overcome, there are seven conditional judgments and threats. The threat here for Ephesus is your lampstand is going to be removed. But if you overcome, what's the reward? It says, I'm going to give you 
the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And I believe, this is pure speculation from Pastor Sean, but I believe totally symbolic. That's what this is, tree of life, eating from it, because this is why. I think it's a conditional reward. The, only, the first time we're introduced to the tree of life is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, anybody, everybody in the garden, Adam and Eve, right, they could eat from that tree. It was okay for them to eat from. Genesis chapter 3, 22, all of a sudden, God says, they cannot eat from that tree. What made the difference? There's a thing called sin. And God said, because of their sin, they are no longer going to be allowed to eat from that tree of life. Because if they eat from that tree in their sin, they will live forever in their sin. And so he kicks them out of the garden, and he stations an angel there with the flaming sword to protect them from ever going back to that tree. So I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, okay, the tree of life, immortality, that's life. Is that really the promise that's being given here? I I kind of wrestle with that. Because I understand that in Jesus Christ... You know, our salvation has been secured. My eternal life is guaranteed because the once-for-all perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the, the death and the resurrection. So what's actually being communicated here? What's the promise? What makes this so appealing? Well, the next time we see this tree of life outside of this passage is Revelation chapter 22. And we're told that that tree that is in the paradise of God, the fruit of that tree and the leaves of that tree bring healing. And bring healing to the nation, literally the people. And so again, this is pure Sean speculation, but I'm thinking this, that if we repent, if Ephesus would repent, that God would meet them and he would give to them what they need for their healing. Would draw right from the paradise of God. Paradise of God being the sum total of everything God desires for us that is good, centered in Jesus Christ. And when we come to him, he gives that to us, not just some far-off mansion over the hilltop, heaven, sweet by and by, but he gives that to us right now. And if we come to him because we have repented, he will meet us and he will give us that healing that we need. And I find that highly encouraging. So if you've heard the warning today, the challenge is, will you repent? Will you turn? Will you experience the healing that only God can bring. We've got to close the service today, and uh, I've got a little piece of homework. And uh, there were more people first hour than we expected, so I'm telling you right up in front, don't know that we have enough of these cards for everybody. Um, If you want one, we're going to have you raise your hand. We're going to hand it out. If you don't get one, please email me, and I will email you the the card, okay? So that's kind of my deal with you. Um, Every week, we're going to hand out or do some kind of homework together. This week... It's going to be very personal. It's between you and the Lord. So guys, go ahead and start passing those around. We may need a couple other guys to kind of help them. Um, Just raise your hand. We'll pass it out. As you are receiving it, you're going to find that there are four boxes. I think I have a copy here. Looks like this, two-sided. One, two, three, four. I apologize. It's pretty faint, but if you look closely, there's four, um, four boxes. I'm going to walk you through the first box first today just by way of reminder so this week when you get out of here you'll remember what you're supposed to do okay so those are the the four boxes here the card is your homework and when you receive it the first box is this it's based on psalm 139 verse 23 and 24 let's put that verse up there this is from the contemporary english version and it says this psalm 139 the psalmist says god i want you to look deep into my heart and i want you to find out everything that i'm thinking 
Don't let me follow evil ways, but lead me in the way that time has proven true. And I think what the psalmist just reveals for us there in this little self-personal inventory is three little observations I want to give you are these three things. The first is this. The first is only God knows everything about me. So if you get your card, the first little box, personal inventory, there are three numbers there. Again, very faint. Apologize for that. You can write in there, only God knows everything about me. Literally what the psalmist is saying, you know, I don't even know all the stuff that's going down deep within me. But God, you do. And God, I need you to search that out. Only God knows everything about me. The second observation is this. Only God can lead me correctly. Only God can lead me correctly. We have a propensity to do evil, to desire after things that are less than what God desires for us. Only God can lead me correctly. And the third is, taking this inventory, it's got to begin with you. Taking the inventory has got to begin with you. You're the only one, when you listen to the Holy Spirit, that knows what's going on inside you. The person next to you may know you, may be married to you, but they don't know what's going on deep inside you. They don't know what God's even saying to you right now. You do. So it's up to you to make yourself available to what God wants to, to reveal to you and work in you. Because he's the only one who understands you fully and completely. Those are the observations. Those are the reminders. Now, there's three other parts. There's three simple yes-no questions. Try to answer those. Then there's an action step, okay? If I answer this, how can I change my answer? What's an action step that I'm going to do? And then there's a prayer down there. If you're like, hey, I'm nailing this, here's a prayer. I want you to pray the prayer. So that's our homework. And my charge to you is this. Do it. Take it with you and do it. And when you come back next Sunday, I want to hear from a few brave souls who've actually done the work and want to share with us what God has been revealing to you. Why are we doing this? Because we say we have one passion. As a church, we desire to have one passion. We want to be consumed by the love of God. We want that consuming love to be manifest in all that we do. We've got great activity going on around here. I mean, tonight, come back, 7 o'clock, the whole enchilada with the Mexico high school, Mexico trip. Um, we got the, the projects in Uganda, the personal care supply. But my hope and my prayer is that we're doing this not from duty, not because that's what a church is supposed to have happening and doing, but we're doing it because our hearts are filled with the love of God. And we're overflowing with that love, and we want to share that love with others. So that's the homework. The charge is to do it and bring it back so we can share and learn from each other. Hear what God has been speaking to you, that one thing that he wants you to know. 